1: Hello and welcome to episode 295 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is from the west of Scotland and was suggested by a member of the audience at the live show in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago. Again, it's one of those stories that I can't quite believe I've never heard of. As always, let me begin by thanking all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That is David. Kitty Sala, Lou Siddons, Sarah Criddle and Kat Tolland. Thank you so much for your support, which is incredibly appreciated. The current competition for Patreon supporters is two backstage tickets with drinks for my London show in August. To be in the draw for that prize, just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Now a word from my sponsor, BetterHelp. I'd never really considered until recently that how well we look after our minds is key to how we experience life. Of course, there are many ways to keep our minds healthy, and one of those is better help. I've found that this therapy has given me time to really understand what I'm thinking and why. You know how it is in our busy lives. We rarely have the time to talk about what we are really feeling to someone who really listens. Without this, it can be, I think, really difficult in my experience to understand why are we feeling down or unproductive. BetterHelp allows you to do this and improve the health of your mind. And it's so easy to do. If you don't wanna see someone face to face, I know that I don't, BetterHelp is online therapy. So you use video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. How good is that? And there's no need to wait around. You could be improving the health of your mind within 48 hours. And as a listener to this show, you get 10% off the first month at betterhelp.com slash truecrime. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash truecrime. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest, the month and year game. Top of the UK music charts. Oh my goodness, it was the cliff with the excruciating millennium prayer. In the US, it was Smooth from Santana, featuring Rob Thomas. In Australia, number five in the charts was The Offspring with Pretty Fly for a White Guy. Remember that? In the news this month, Jay-Z stabbed record executive Lance on Riviera at a nightclub in New York. Control of Panama Canal reverted to Panama. You know, international politics, it doesn't always have to be so hard, does it? and Boris Yeltsin resigned as President of Russia, leaving Prime Minister Vladimir Putin as Acting President. This month saw the publication of Julia Donaldson's children's book The Gruffalo, and in UK true crime news, former Beatle George Harrison, aged 56 at the time, suffered stab wounds after being attacked by an intruder at his mansion near Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire. Did you guess the month and year? It was December 1999. Do you remember what it was like to be 18, with all those hopes and dreams that lay ahead of you? Barry Wallace, who lived near Kilmarnock in Ayrshire, just a few miles south of Glasgow, was 18 in 1999, and he had hopes and dreams for the future, but he wasn't given the opportunity to achieve them. It was Saturday, the 4th of December 1999 when Ian Wallace and his wife Christine popped to Tesco's as they were off to see friends in Glasgow that evening and wanted to buy flowers for their hosts and sweets for their friends' children. There they met one of their two children, 18-year-old Barry, who worked there. They had an older son, Colin, too. Ian said, We bumped into Barry. He'd been Christmas shopping and we'd done the same. His mum asked him what he wanted for his dinner and when he'd be coming up the road. I phoned him when we got to Glasgow, about 8pm, because his mum had made his dinner and I wanted to make sure he was in, having his dinner, because he was going out to his works Christmas party. This party was taking place at the Fox Bar Hotel in Kilmarnock, and after that he was going into town to meet some friends and possibly head off to a party. Just as we all did when we were 18, right? Barry told his parents he probably wouldn't be home that night which was fine as that was often the case. But as Sunday progressed and Barry still wasn't home, his parents began to worry. They contacted as many of his friends as possible, but none of them knew where he was. Sunday was a long day with the family desperate for Barry to call or turn up, but there was nothing. And by the Monday, when Barry was still not home, his parents were very concerned. And this increased further, when they learnt that Barry had not reported for his shift at his work. I went straight to the police office at the back of 5pm on the Monday and reported him missing, said Ian. The police looked into Barry's lifestyle for any clues about what might have happened to him. A good-looking, foot 2 tall young man, he was a shy but seemingly popular person who was independent, he'd been working at the local Tesco since he was 17. He wasn't sure what to do next with his life and was thinking about maybe joining the army so he could travel or maybe become a DJ as he was a big music fan. He was sporty and thought he might enjoy being a PE teacher. But he knew there was no big hurry to decide and was quite happy with his life, living with his parents and brother and spending a lot of time out enjoying himself with his pals. He'd had a few girlfriends, a couple he'd brought home to meet his parents But he was only 18, he wasn't looking for anything too serious at this stage of his life. It seemed that Barry was mature for his age and he'd never got into any trouble, he'd never become known to the police. There was nothing that suggested that anyone would have had any motive to cause Barry any harm at all. Detectives looked closely at the last evening for his disappearance. The Christmas party had been a good one and Barry and his colleagues enjoyed themselves. A number of people at the party commented that Barry was pretty drunk and that when the party finished at 1am, Barry and a female colleague headed off into town and the Expo nightclub. It was here that the night seemed to take a bit of a downward spiral. As you may have experienced after drinking, sometimes when you emerge into the cold night air, you are sometimes much more tipsy than you realised. Barry was, he was unsteady and he fell over on his way to town. A colleague who was in a car travelling home offered to give him a lift and so he got into the car. She wanted to drop Barry at his house, but he wanted to go to a club. I tried to encourage him to go home, but he was adamant he was going into town, she said. So she dropped him at the taxi rank in Kilmarnock, where he got into an altercation with another drunk young man who'd been out partying. The other guy punched him twice, Barry went down, but the situation didn't escalate and the two ended up shaking hands and wishing each other a good evening. There was one final sighting of Barry later that night, at 1.30am outside the Expo nightclub. But it's unclear if he ever actually went into the club, or what happened to him from that point. No witnesses could be traced to have seen Barry inside or outside the club. Just where had he gone from here? Of course, while the investigation continued, the Wallace family were living a nightmare, hoping for the best, but fearing the worst. And this fear was made worse by what was being reported on the media in the days after Barry's disappearance, which was of body parts being recovered in and around Loch Lomond. It had been a training session for police divers, when one of them found two black bin liners in the water, which were found to contain part of a human leg and a human hand. Over the next day, the diving team found more bin bags. These contained another hand, a thigh, and a piece of an arm. Could this be Barry? Then nine days after Barry's disappearance and 60 miles away, Margaret Burley, a walker with her dog, came across a plastic carrier bag on the high tide line at the beach at Barassi near Troon on the Ayrshire coast. Through a tear in the side of the bag, Margaret saw to her horror that it was a human head. Terrified, she called the police. Ian Wallace had the terrible task of being asked to view the head, to confirm that it was his son, Barry. It's impossible to know how he must have felt on that journey to do the identification, but when he looked at the head, he knew straight away that it belonged to his beloved son. Barry Wallace's remains indicated that he'd suffered a horrifying death. He'd been over four times the legal drink drive limit when he was killed, which at least suggests that the ordeal wasn't drawn out for too long. But the findings were horrific. He'd been handcuffed on the wrists and ankles, and the marks on his arms and legs showed he'd violently struggled to get free. He'd been raped, seemingly whilst restrained. There was a puncture wound on his arm which was apparently from a needle, so had some substance been injected to sedate him? The injuries he'd suffered were so severe that the cause of death was unclear. And once he'd been killed, Barry's body was cut into eight pieces, which were then put into black bin bags, and his head was put in the plastic carrier bag, which washed up on the Ayrshire coast. Just what sort of monster had done this to Barry, and why? Had it been someone he knew, or a random attack, And now with the pieces of body being discovered in different locations, was it someone playing a macabre game with investigators? Among all the names being considered at this early stage in the investigation, one name kept coming up due to his location and history. This was William Beggs. It was on the 17th of December, the day that the foot and lower leg were found in Lot Lomond, that Beggs was driving home from work. He'd stayed in Edinburgh the night before, after a work Christmas party. To his horror, he heard that a flat was being searched in Kilmarnock in connection with the death of Barry. Rather than head home, he did a U-turn and headed south to Luton Airport, where he bought a flight to Jersey in the Channel Islands using a false name, William Frederick. From there, he headed to France and then made his way to Amsterdam. And why he did that U-turn is clear. At his flat, detectives found that he'd been decorating his house. There were new carpets and a strong smell of bleach and fresh paint. Was this to get rid of any evidence of what he'd done to Barry Wallace? But as we've heard so many times on this podcast, it's incredibly difficult to remove all traces of an attack and forensic experts found a small amount of Barry's blood. They also found a carrier bag with the logo of the DFDS ferry line This was a carrier bag which was found on the beach containing Barry's head. They had their man and now it was about finding him. Over the next couple of days the papers nationally labelled him the limbs in the lock killer. Don't you just hate it when they give them those sort of names? No mention of Barry at all. And Beggs was public enemy number one with members of the public being advised to immediately call 999 if he was spotted and on no Occasion to approach him. But there was no sign. Christmas came and went, there was still no sign of Beggs. Then on the 28th of December 1999, Beggs and his lawyer appeared at a police station in Amsterdam to surrender. But from there, his legal team did all they could to stop him being extradited to Scotland for trial. They argued as the publicity meant he would not be able to receive a fair trial in Scotland. But eventually, in April 2000, it was decided that Beggs should stand trial in Scotland and he arrived back to Edinburgh Airport and straight into police custody. In September 2001, 38-year-old William Begg stood trial accused of the murder, sexual assault and dismemberment of Barry Wallace. He pleaded not guilty. And he told the court he had an alibi for the time that Barry went missing, which was that he was at a party. But this didn't stand up well with witnesses who said that though he was at the party, it was only briefly and he would have had plenty of time to meet Barry at the time he went missing. The jury heard that Beggs had cut the body into eight pieces and thrown the limbs and torso into Lomond. He kept his head, he kept the head at his home for full two days before throwing it into the sea from the Troon to Belfast Ferry. The week after Barry went missing, Beggs went into work for just a couple of hours before going home saying he was feeling sick. Later that day, a neighbour saw him acting strangely, going quickly from his house to a car as if hiding something. As Beggs drove away, the neighbour saw a number of black bin bags in the back of his car. After that, Beggs took the ferry to Belfast from Troon to see his family back in Northern Ireland. It was during this time he was thought to have thrown some of the black bin liners containing Barry Wallace's remains into the sea. On the 10th of December, he returned to Troon, going back to Belfast the next day. And on the 12th of December, he came back to Scotland again, presumably having discarded all of Barry's remains and thinking he'd quite literally got away with murder. After this, he went back to work as usual, even enjoying Christmas parties, until the 17th of December, when he heard about the flat being searched by the police and made his escape to Holland. The forensic evidence was strong, with an expert telling the High Court in Edinburgh that the chances of the blood on a mattress, discarded carpet, kitchen door and washing machine coming from anyone other than 18-year-old Barry Wallace were a billion to one against. After 17 days of evidence, the jury took just 2 hours and 10 minutes To find Beggs guilty. The trial judge Lord Osborne said that Beggs should serve a minimum of 20 years. He said it had been the most distressing of cases and appalling of offences. Following the verdict Barry's dad Ian Wallace said we are glad that this devil's trail of death and destruction has finally been halted and no other innocent child or family will have to suffer in the future and more people had suffered at the hands of William Beggs. Let me go into his background a little more. He was the oldest of five children and born in County Armagh, Northern Ireland, in 1961. His parents, William Beggs Senior, a lecturer, and Winifred, a headmistress, gave the children a strict childhood. It was a strict regime of school, learning and worship, as both his parents were deeply religious, and were also strongly linked to local politics. Beggs attended the Society of Friends School in Lisbon, which was known as a place where teachers tried to give all their pupils gentle Quaker values. But from his early teens, it was noted that Beggs was showing an unhealthy interest in young boys. He spent a lot of his time alone, often in his bedroom listening to loud, heavy metal music. One former pupil said of him, He was a real loner and quite creepy, and I don't remember him ever having a girlfriend. Everybody thought there was something odd about him. He was quite clever at school, but was more interested in his music. And Beggs wasn't poor academically. He managed to secure nine O-levels and two A-levels. But his college plans in Northern Ireland never came to fruition. Northern Ireland at that time was very different to today and when the terrorists of the Ulster Volunteer Force heard about his liking for young boys, he was driven away from the community. Paedophiles were the subject of the UVF's own form of justice, which was nasty beatings at best or death at worst. A source said, Beggs was given the opportunity to go quietly or stay and suffer the consequences. He chose to leave. Beggs moved to the northeast of England in 1982 and took a course in public administration at Teesside Polytechnic in Middlesbrough. He was known for his strong loyalist views and was active in the ultra-right-wing Federation of Conservative Students, even on one time going to Downing Street. But he severed his ties with this group saying he'd been threatened when he complained that someone was collecting funds behind the bar for the IRA. The Anglo-Irish agreement in 1985 was the final straw for Beggs and he gave up his interest in politics after this. Whilst in Middlesbrough, he played the organ at St John's Church on the South Bank and he was also a member of the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserves. At this time, Beggs would head to nearby Newcastle to pick up young men. But at this time, it also became clear that he was a sadistic man with a propensity for violence against the young men he picked up in bars and clubs. One of his former partners commented that he appeared to hate the fact that he was gay and he would turn unpleasant after sex. It was no secret amongst his fellow students that he was violent when he'd been drinking and he was particularly hostile towards gay men. He also picked up drunk heterosexual men at this time, promising them drinks back at his house when the pubs and bars had shut for the evening. When there, he would sexually assault and attack them. He boasted he enjoyed this, as they would be unlikely to report what had happened to the police, as they didn't want their friends and families knowing what had happened. But some men were starting to report begs to the police, and he was linked to a series of horrific slashing attacks around the north of England, He first came to the attention of the police as part of an investigation into attacks on gay students with razors. In December 1986, Beggs attacked his roommate with a razor and other razor attacks led back to Beggs. He was also suspected of a knife attack on an older man who said that after sex with Beggs, he woke up in the middle of the night to find him carving symbols into his thighs with a knife. It is believed that he was involved in 14 incidents from 1983 to 1987 and despite being questioned by police in Middlesbrough in 1985 over an indecent assault case, he didn't face any charges and went on to graduate in 1987. When the police searched Begg's place in Kilmarnock looking for evidence about the disappearance of Barry Wallace, they found much more than just the evidence presented in court. It didn't come out till after the trial but it wasn't just Barry's blood that was found in Beggs' home. There was blood from 17 different men discovered. There were pictures of young men all over his home, as well as what was described as souvenirs and trophies. Had William Beggs been responsible for the death of more innocent young men? In next week's concluding episode of this story, we will discover that when he killed Barry Wallace... Beggs had already spent time in prison for another murder with disturbing similarities to the disappearance and murder of Barry Wallace. And we look at other crimes committed by Beggs. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's just the most terrible story, isn't it? Our hearts go out to the family of Barry Wallace, who are left just not knowing what exactly happened to Barry. The details of the trial they sat through must have been awful, but not knowing exactly what happened and why must be too. And in those long dark hours of the night, I hope they don't think too much about just what a frightening time he suffered in those last hours or minutes of his life. And as we were here next week, William Beggs shouldn't even have been a free man able to hurt Barry Wallace or any of his other victims. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please just head to the Facebook group, search UK True Crime, and you will find over 81,000 of us ready to chat UK true crime 24-7. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. Not only will you find over 40 bonus episodes But there's loads of other exclusive content and competitions, such as your chance to win the backstage tickets for my live show in London in August. Tickets are just £12. What do you mean you haven't got yours yet? So on all my social channels, come and join me, Paul and Mike. You can join Patreon for as little as £1 a month and you can cancel at any time. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Okay, so that's all from me for another week. I'll speak to you again on Tuesday for the concluding part of this story. So until we speak then, please do take it easy and despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.